You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Ivan Maisel on the show with me today. He has a phenomenal new memoir. It's called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, and this uh, is an emotional roller coaster that will uh, take you through this journey with Ivan, and uh, we're going to talk all about it today, but this this is a must-have in your uh in your book collection i know you're gonna love it uh, welcome to the show ivan well hank you're very kind and i'm uh, delighted to be here well uh thank you for for joining us uh before we get started we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller i uh <laughs> Grew up near you in Mobile, and and I had the uh, intense desire as a child to be the play-by-play guy for the Braves. Uh, but uh, I grew up in a family of storytellers, and about the time I got to high school, I had an English teacher who really encouraged me that I could write and gave me the confidence to write, and it took off from there. The um, uh, being uh, from the southeast and and having that dream of being the Braves play-by-play guy um, is is pretty uh, phenomenal. For when we're recording this, uh, the World Series started last night, and uh, uh-huh. and the Braves are in the World Series and won Game One. So that's you know if being a kid from the southeast, it doesn't really matter where in the southeast you are, but the Braves are your home team. They are, and I have lived in Connecticut for nearly 30 years now, but uh, I, I I am fond of the Red Sox, but the Braves still have my heart. Right. <laughs> There's just something about the home team in there. It sure is, especially when those roots are planted in, in uh, at, at an early age. Absolutely. So that that fondness early on of of wanting to be a you know a play by play guy, um, you maybe not uh, maybe not that specific dream, but uh, you were able to to parlay that love into into a career that um, is is pretty much what you wanted to do, isn't it? It's been exactly what I wanted to do. Now I, I've been a sports writer. This is uh, for forty years. Uh, I did not get to college football until uh, my sixth year in the business. And and oddly enough, Hank, since we started down that road, I covered baseball my first five years in the in the business. And it pretty much cured me of my love of baseball. I I didn't really like the people as much as I uh, thought I would. And. If you grow up in Alabama, you 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 understand at a gut level 
the passions and the emotions of college football. Oh yeah. And it was just natural for me uh, when I had that opportunity to seize it and to be able to tell those stories and interpret those passions for readers has, is is still a blast. I'm still having a great time doing it. Well, being um, kind of in, in the Bible Belt uh, where we grew up, um, if college football might not be the official religion, but it's real close. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> neck and neck with Baptist uh, belief. <laughs> That's right. And, and 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 in all seriousness, you know, growing up uh, Jewish in the South, football was a way to connect to what everybody else was doing. You know, there was always a sense. Uh, of even in the 60s and 70s, you know, much, you know, a generation beyond my parents who were also born and raised in Mobile, there was still a sense of outsiderness. And I think that also contributed to the career I chose. I, I observed and I learned to observe uh, from the outside quite naturally. And that's a lot of what I do. You know, that's what I've always done uh, as a journalist. So it all sort of flowed together. And now that I look back on it. That's fantastic. Um, journalism is is interesting to me. Um, and it uh, th- I've known quite a lot of journalists who then turned to writing more uh, long form, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's fiction, sometimes it's nonfiction or memoir. Um, but are there any uh, particular tools that you have picked up along the way that uh, in being a journalist um, that have helped you, um, you know, when, when you're writing your memoir, I keep trying to catch his eye, um, you know, were there certain tools that you picked up along the way as a journalist that helped you in uh, in that pursuit? That's an interesting question. I think trying to describe something like that is like trying to describe how you would write a song or or make music. You know, to me, I'm fascinated by lyrics. You know, I would love to be able to write a good lyric and I have just no capacity to do it. Uh, I think as you tell a story as a journalist, you develop a rhythm in your head as to how the story should flow. And to, to say that to somebody and, and, and then have them expect you to explain that rhythm is, you know, it's, I'm a little mystified by how it happens. I just know, you know, how a story should be told. And I think some of that is learning, having learned, by doing it to trust my own voice and to trust my own opinion of what the story is. I spent, and I, and I write about this in the book a little bit, I spent 25 years writing stories in which I tried to tell the reader everything that happened, figuring it with the intention of letting them decide what was most important because I didn't feel qualified enough to do that. And finally, Thank God about 
10 years ago, I just decided I had acquired the, the credibility and the gravitas in my own mind to do the selections myself. And once I did that, you know, which is what you're supposed to do, I think, I, I became right. a much better writer. So um, along the way, um, you got married, started a family. Um, and did, did you say that you, you guys um, uh, settled in Connecticut? We did. Uh, my wife and I met in Manhattan when I was a fact checker at Sports Illustrated in the pre-Google era in the 80s. And, uh, <laughs> she, uh, I dragged her down. I worked. I began covering college football at the Dallas Morning News and after Max, our second child, was born in 1994, she, Meg, looked at me one day and said, I want to go back east. She's from upstate New York. And I said, well, I don't. And she just you know, pointed at me and said, you're not here. You're traveling. I'm the one who's home. We should live where I want to be because I'm the one who's there. You know, and I went, damn, she's right. Yeah. And that was a... <laughs> I didn't have an argument. I, I still, you know, nearly 30 years later, don't have a good comeback for that. That would have kept me in the South. So uh, we moved to Connecticut and I got a job up there. So as we when we open the uh, the book, I keep trying to catch his eye. Um, you don't bury the lead um, at all. You drop us right into um, the the thick of the story and you start describing um, this evening when you're home uh, and and you get this phone call and you even, you know, talk about the the type of soup that you're cooking that, you know, it's it's interesting to me, these indelible memories that, uh, uh, you know, that that we uh, that, that stand out in our mind. Um, can you kind of give us a, a brief overview of, of how the story begins? Sure. I, I think with a topic this uh, fraught with emotion, I, I felt like I had to set the stage and and rivet the the reader's attention the way that you know my own lapels were grabbed when that phone rang. Uh, cold night and a really cold winter of 2015 in February. The phone rings. It's a Monday night, and it's a a sheriff in Monroe County, New York, where Max, our middle child, 21-year-old junior at RIT, was going to school. And the sheriff said to me basically that he, you know, he had found our car parked at the lakefront of Lake Ontario. And I knew right where he was describing. It's a mile east of my brother-in-law's summer home where we had spent some time every summer for throughout Max's childhood. And I knew what it meant. I knew it meant that Max was, was gone, you know, that he had decided to end his life. He was being treated for depression. And, uh, you know, I, it, it just didn't take me very long, Hank, to put two and two together. I mean, before I hung up, I knew. And that, you know, and then you, you, um, you walk us through contacting your wife and then, uh, you know, all of the events that start happening, um, from there. 
yeah. how do how do you you know one of the the big themes of the book is uh, is dealing with grief and how unprepared uh, as a society we are for dealing with grief. Um, what what was what was your family going through at this time? That it's uh, you know it's it's one of these things that we we hope that we never know, um, but then when faced with it, um, you know, how do you start you know, compartmentalizing what's going on in life so that you can can just live day to day? Well, that's very well put. I I. Uh... Yeah, I was 55 years old and it spent a lifetime of avoiding grief and avoiding that sort of pain. Sure. Um, my father had died uh, eight years, seven years earlier, and I really didn't deal with that very well. I, I refused to acknowledge he was dying until he had died. You know, I just uh, it, that was just easier for me and, it, and a real disservice both to me and to him and, and certainly to my children. Uh, but that's who I was. Uh, this time I didn't have a choice and I had to learn uh, how to carry the grief and continue on. And there were a few, you know, a few things that I learned to employ that helped me. And, and I describe them with the hope that they will help others fully uh, cognizant that, and I say so in the book that all grief is individual and everybody does it differently, but this is what worked for me. And, uh, it was, it, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, the, the first was understanding that whatever, whatever you do, you have to do something to get it out of your system. Because if you don't get it out when you want it to come out, it will come out when it wants to come out. And that's probably not gonna be convenient to your life. Uh, there was a, uh, there, there is a poet named Edward Hirsch who wrote a poem about his late son who described, uh, and in the poem, <clears throat> excuse me, Hirsch describes grief as carrying a bag of cement up a hill that never ends. Mm -hmm. And that is a beautiful image and it, and it crystallized in my mind, the idea that this was not something that you get through. Uh, Meg said, we don't deal in prepositions with this. You don't get through grief. You don't get over grief. It's, it's just there. And you have to learn how to pick it up, and trudge up the hill and, and continue to live your life. If you remain in the fetal position, as you surely want to do at that moment, you're going to miss a lot of other things. And some of them are going to be joyful. You know, you, you just can't stay back where the, the person you lost is. It's, it's just not possible. And you know, the, the, those, and if uh, just one more thing, the idea of grief is love. It's a very painful form of love. But once I thought, once I realized that uh, the amount of grief I had for Max was commensurate to the amount of love I had for him, 
Right. It just made it a lot easier to carry. I, I rather than stiff arm it, which was my first inclination, I began to lean into it and let it wash over me. And it just made it easier to carry. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com well, Ivan, to to add to um, the grief in the beginning, um, y- you guys didn't know for sure what had happened to Max. Um, they they found his car abandoned, and I think you know as as the days passed on, some assumptions probably started to creep in, um, but you just didn't know. Um, yeah. What was that period like when you know? Uh, in the period of of not knowing, but maybe deep in your mind, kind of knowing what the inevitabilities probably were, um, but just you know wrestling with with the idea of 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 hope and you know what what role does hope play in this and and where you know just trying to figure out which emotions are valid emotions. Meg had hope. Uh, I didn't have hope. Hank, I, you know, I, I just looked at logically, there was only one answer, you know, and the police, the police who just were so professional in what they did and, and, and kind to us explained that they would not make any assumptions about anything. They would just follow evidence. So they refused initially to say it was a suicide and, and, you know, they said, well, maybe he went on walkabout, you know, he just had it and he, he went, you know, he went on a joyride. Yeah. Well, that's not who Max was. You know, Max was, he was shy. He was withdrawn. He, he didn't drink. Uh, and and my, most of his close friends were online. You know, there were, there were, he had friends on campus, uh, but 
he had just as many friends online from playing video games. And so the, the, the walkabout thing didn't, didn't track, uh, yeah, and Max, uh, Meg kept thinking there was, you know, there had to be a, 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 another answer. But you know, we were tracking his credit cards, and they, you know, they weren't being used. And and then the police began to go through what he had used his credit cards for, and, and developed enough circumstantial evidence that you could connect the dots to see he had intentions of ending his life. So. Uh, that said, science and the temperature of the water in Lake Ontario did not surrender his body for eight weeks. It was mid-April before some poor fisherman came across him. And, you know, and thank God he did because it, he could have very easily gone far enough out into the, the lake or his body could have not surfaced uh, anywhere near shore. It's a very big lake. So, yeah. um, I, I knew, you know, I, I, I just, it just, there was no other logical answer. And, and you, you do a masterful job of, of describing the journey and, and all of the emotions that go with that and, and, and how your family dealt with it. Um, in the book, and and uh, right. we're going to have links to the book in in the show notes of this episode where where people can pick it up. Um, but Ivan, I I would like to ask you, um, as someone who who lived this experience and and you know finally got to the place where you could have some perspective on it and and have uh, the ability to look back on it and and you know begin to process how you felt about everything and, and, you know, where you fit into this story. Um, what was it that, uh, uh, that motivated you to, to write this down? And what was it that, uh, that told you that this might be a story that other people could benefit from hearing? I think I, I think I, Five years passed, and I had the perspective I needed to be able to tell the story. You know, the, the, the writing, it was not therapeutic. It was not cathartic. I had to do all that work before I was in any condition to write. Uh, once I did that, I was motivated somewhat by Max not being defined by how he died. You know, I, I we... Uh, we pretty much ignored the stigma of mental illness uh, in, in how we uh, reacted to his death publicly. You know, we made everything public. You know, we, didn't, we didn't hold anything back. And honestly, Hank, in those early days, you're, you're trying to put one foot in front of the other. You know, and now sure. I was going to have to, you know, try to remember who had top secret clearance to know everything and, and who didn't, you know, and who we were going to tell some things and, oh, well, they're only a second cousin, you know, we're only going to tell them this, you know, and it was, uh, I had no interest in that. And, and I thought that by not being, by not telling people what happened, that it would connote that we were ashamed of Max and, and we, and we weren't, he was sick. 
So, I, you know, there was also, a, I think, some motivation to, to, show, to bring sunlight to mental illness. And, and, and as I said earlier, I, I think to be, in terms of my grief, to, to be a docent through my grief with, that maybe people who, uh, who, like me, went through life stiff-arming grief would learn uh, how to carry it and, and how to deal with people who are grieving. So how do you begin? This is one thing that I find fascinating about, about memoirs, um, specifically because unlike um, autobiography where you're telling um, you know, the, the life story and from, from cradle to grave, um, you are – you're giving us a, a window into a portion of your life. And uh, how do you determine what that window is? What, what What's the beginning and the end of the story? How do you start tracking the trajectory? Obviously, you start us kind of at that first moment where you're brought into the tragedy. Um, but then, you know, carry us through kind of how you look at uh, you know, what portion of the story you're going to share? Well, what I, you know, the, the, the opening chapter, the opening, uh, scene was dramatic and, and riveting and, you know, you got to know how to write a lead, right? You got to get sure. them into the tent. And, and then I backed up and said, okay, this is who I am. And this is why I was, uh, this is who I who I am and who I was at that moment when I was so ill-equipped to handle what was what was happening to me, and, and after that it just kind of flowed. Honestly, I, I, you know, oh, okay, I need to tell you about my, you know, in order to explain who we were as a family, I had to tell you about me and about me and Meg and you know, my wife and and. Uh, and then this was Max's childhood. And, uh, and then I came back to his death and, and the aftermath. And, and, uh, we had a very, you know, I'm, I am a quasi public figure. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, at the time I was at ESPN, I wasn't on TV very much. I'd mostly wrote for the website, but, I was, you know, those four magical letters meant that People Magazine did a story about Max's disappearance and, you know, which we just, you know, Max would have been just appalled at that. Uh, (laughs) The fact that he was, he was in, uh, he was in People Magazine, but, uh, you know, it, it just sort of flowed. And, you know, once I got to, back to the moment when he disappeared and then there was something chronological in the telling of it and the explaining the various stages of grief we went through up until it, you know the, the present moment so it really uh and, and actually you know a month before the manuscript was due espn called me and informed me they weren't going to renew my contract uh, you know, as of February 1st of this year. And I had been there for six three-year contracts. And 
and that provided a, a sort of a way to close the the book. You know, this is uh, this has happened to me, but it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And, and right. this this whole experience gave me a perspective to handle a lot of things that I would have had trouble handling. So, Ivan, when when you first start thinking about um, collecting these thoughts and 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 writing a narrative um you know maybe it started as as uh just an exercise for you uh or or maybe you had this intention all along that you were going to collect your memoirs um to share um when do you start talking to meg your wife and your and your daughters um about um telling this story because uh, you know mm-hmm. with, with with your son um you're all a part of this story in in a lot of ways um how do you start broaching that subject with the rest of the family and with with loved ones who you know felt a a very close connection to uh, not only to max but you know to the the greater story at large they uh you know they understand that that's how i communicate uh, you know, but I said to them when I began to write, you know, if you don't want me to do it, then then tell me and I won't do it. And um, and, and then when I finished the manuscript, I emailed it to the three of them and said, read this uh, both for tone and for accuracy and to tell me whether you're OK with it, you know, emotionally. And. Uh, Sarah, our oldest, who's uh, more of a writer than Elizabeth, you know, had some great editorial suggestions and, and was and was and we discussed a couple of things that pertained to her specifically and, you know, and adjusted them. And uh, Meg, who is a terrific editor of mine, just because she knows me so well, we the, there were some she was pissed. <laughs> there were some things. <laughs> You know that I just misinterpreted something that she had uh, done or felt, and and uh, I said, okay, I'll fix it. And if I can't fix it the way you like it, I'll take it out. And if and if I take it out and you still don't like it, I'll send them their money back. You know, I, I it, you know, there was no uh, I have to write this. You know, compulsion. That's just what I do, and it was. Uh, a way that uh, to me just felt very natural that it was time to be able to try to tell the story. It definitely helps. It would seem like um, to have a family that, that understood that uh, about you and, and understood, you know, not only with your, your career that, you know, for, you know, a couple of decades, you know, you've, you've supported your family by, by uh you know writing and and telling these stories and so that would be a natural um expression for you now to to collect your thoughts in this way um that w- as you went through the editorial process where you know i i can only imagine that there were probably family meetings about okay it's this is getting real it's it's going to be out you know on such and such a date um you know were there many conversations like that not not formally, you know, uh, meetings per se, but it was I would was trying to keep them abreast of what was going on. 
uh, with the manuscript, with the book, to the point where I, you know, I began to feel like, God, am I being tedious about this? You know, do I need to be talking about something else? You know, I, uh, uh, you know, because it has, it does sort of take over your life. You know, to right. run up to a book, and and now certainly during publication week. Um, uh, and, and the, and the days and weeks after publication, uh, I'm trying, you know, I, I'm, and in fact, you know, on the day of publication, on the eve of the day of publication, to be precise, I, you know, I sat down with Elizabeth and said, how are you doing with this? Uh, are you, you know, what do we need to talk about? And she had dreamt about Max and, you know, and, and so she was telling me about the dream and I had just dreamt about Max. We were trading dreams and, uh, Elizabeth is private enough that she doesn't, you know, whatever misgiving she has, she doesn't tell me. She just, you know, uh, figures them out on her own. But, you know, I, I, I think they know my door is open on that subject, and I try to tell them that, you know, regularly. The um, the title of the book, um, I keep trying to catch his eye. Um, finding a title for a memoir um, has got to be excruciating. Um, you know, uh, did has this always been the title? Um, did what was yeah. that, what was your process like for for finding a title that would um you know adequately express to a new reader um kind of the tone of of what they should expect well let me preface that by saying i suck at writing headlines you know i was just <laughs> never any good at it and i marvel at at people who can write a good headline you know and and for and sure. that's really what a what a title is I was staring at the uh, the wallpaper on my phone three years ago, and the photo is of uh, our three children at Sarah, our Sarah's college graduation. Sarah is our oldest, and the girls are looking straight into the camera, and Max is looking up and away. Max <laughs> hated to have his photograph taken. He loved taking photographs he didn't like being in front of the camera and i'm just looking at at that photo and he he had been dead for three years at that point and i thought i'm you know i'll never i'll never get him to look at me and that uh so that sentiment that i keep trying to catch his eye propelled me to write an essay that i posted on medium in 2018 uh, about where I was at that stage of my grief and and it really got it it, it got uh, enough of a response that I you know that sort of began to plant the seed though maybe I should do something uh, in longer form because medium contacted me and had me uh, do an audio file of, of the essay, which was not, I don't think it was a thousand words. I don't even remember now. I think it was fewer than that. Uh, 
but I could, I could tell that there was an audience for the way I was thinking about this and the way I was, I was, uh, processing it and writing about it. And so that those seeds were beginning to germinate in my mind about maybe doing, taking a book on, you know, look, I, I write in 1200 word, uh, segments, uh, sure. you know, chunks. I was not in a hurry to take on a book. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> my, my father used to say about me, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ivan's not scared of work. He can sit there and look at it all day long. You know, so <laughs> you know, the, the, the notion of writing a book has always, yeah, I mean, I've written a couple and, and it's, it's just a lot of work, but yeah, this one kind of needed to be written. So Ivan, when someone picks up, I keep trying to catch his eye and, and, and they sit down with the book when they, when they finish it and close that back cover, what do you hope they're left with? Uh, a better uh, sense of, of grief and of the grieving and maybe a new outlook on how to handle both and you know there's a uh, there's an old saying in Judaism that as long as someone says your name you know there's a part of you that is still alive and, and still present on earth and you know, maybe we can keep Max around a little longer Absolutely. I keep trying to catch his eyes available everywhere. Now we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it from Amazon, um, e- either in Kindle edition or hardcover uh, and audiobook. Um, you mentioned that uh, uh, about doing the audio for that medium post. Um, have you uh, how, how did the audiobook turn out of the of the, uh, the memoir? Well, I, I enjoyed doing it. I did it over four summer afternoons this, this year. And uh, I, I think uh, my, my Yankee wife is suggesting to everyone that they play it at, at 1.5x. But I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, it, no, it, it was good. And, and, and honestly, Hank, and seriously, uh, I, everybody else seemed to be concerned that I, you know, I might be emotional reading the manuscript, but I, there was a bit of being performative in it. But you know, the premise all along that I've I've said, along the fact that it wasn't therapeutic or cathartic, was I had to get to a place where my feet were under me before I could yeah. take this on. And, and once I decided to do it, uh, you know, it, it's reading it was uh, to me, I would rather have me read it with my tone of voice and, and my emphasis on whatever words that I thought needed to be emphasized than have an actor do it. Right. I think that's uh, that's perfect. I keep trying to catch his eyes available everywhere now. Um, Ivan, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the stuff you're doing. Is there a place where they can connect with you online? Sure. I mean, I'm 
excuse me, I, I'm on Twitter at Ivan underscore Maisel, M-A-I-S-E-L. Uh, I, I write for on3.com. A, it's a startup that I uh, hooked up with, dove in with. Uh, we, went, we turned the lights on August 1st. We cover college athletics. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to hear from people about the book. It, it, it would, uh, that would mean a lot to me. Well, we will link up all of that in the show notes uh, of this episode. Ivan, this has been so much uh, fun chatting. Uh, I love the book. We're recommending it to everyone. Thank you so thank much you. for taking time to come on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Hank. That means a lot. I really enjoyed it. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. The brutes of the Andersonville Prison Hospital have moved me to the dead room, or so it has come to be known. None so domiciled have yet left this place. We receive only the smallest rations and only cursory care, to reduce our odors and spare the nostrils of our keepers. The good Christians of the Confederacy do not see any need to provide comfort to those who will soon sleep soundly enough underground. You must know, at least, how your father came to such an end. At Doctortown, Kilpatrick entrusted me with the conquest of a railroad trestle, and my bummers, my demolition team, acquitted themselves admirably thanks to my ingenuity with powder. We successfully destroyed the trestle work past Morgan's Lake, this would prove to be my entire contribution to the war. Federal troops were unable to capture the bridge or overcome the enemy's battery. Kilpatrick withdrew, and my bummers and I found ourselves on the wrong side of the Altamaha River, behind the enemy line with no hope of reaching our encampment. Rebels accosted us, taking our remaining supplies. We escaped and headed south, hoping by a long march to reach Seymour's forces in Jacksonville, but we encountered other rebel encampments at Jessup. Four of my men were lost to gunfire. We marched west, then south again, barely evading capture. We had no choice but to brave the great swamp Okefenokee. Oh, on and on it goes, in every direction, endlessly. We trudged through miles of grasping mud and noxious rot, pursued by hunger and the mosquito, scratching at our arms and faces until all our skin was scourged. We lived off alligator meat at first, then nothing at all. My men grew mutinous, blamed me for all their misfortunes, threatened to throw me in a sack, weigh me down with stones, and sink my body. Yet was I not equally hungry? Did I not starve? I grew weary of their endless insubordination and contempt. Finally, they took hold of me and swore they would hang me by the neck for leading them to ruin. They were five in number, younger than I and more muscular. I was no match for them physically. They lay their hands on me and I burned them. I burned those men. The flame rose from me as from a volcano, stripping the skin from those boys, blackening their faces, roasting their flesh. And let this be my final ghastly confession. I feasted that night, feasted on the meat of my prospective murderers.
and that is how I survived. I staggered alone from that swamp, a mad thing, fueled by outrage and guilt. I saw an encampment of rebel soldiers and surrendered myself gladly. They say in Andersonville prison all men are brothers, equal in filth, equal in terror, equal in ruin. Yet I feel I may claim some small distinction, at least, for I am surely damned to a greater extent than any here.